All right, you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9 as we complete our study in that chapter this morning. Acts chapter 9. All right, if you have your Bible, I don't think we have the scripture on the screen this morning. So uh, we'll read along with me. We'll pick it up in verse 26 and read down to verse 33, uh, 43, excuse me. So remember last week we sort of dropped off there in the middle of the chapter with verse 25. So beginning in verse 26, the word of God reads, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And they were multiplied. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all the parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, And the disciples had heard that Peter was there. They sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When they had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And when she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to us as we have gathered together. Lord, you have gone to such great lengths to reveal yourself to us. And we have your word. Your word is so relevant. It's so real. It is truth. And so as we open it and read it this morning, may your truth wash over us and correct us and refresh us and encourage us and strengthen us and build us up. And may we walk out of here today encouraged and filled and moved to be your people out in the world, Lord. Right now we're the church gathered, but when we leave here this afternoon, we will be the church scattered. Use us as seeds in the wind to share the hope of the good news of the gospel with the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as you know, last week we were in chapter 9 here. We've been looking at Saul of Tarsus' conversion. And just to refresh your memory, as you, uh, you know, let your eyes scan back up to the top of the chapter, beginning in verse 1, uh, Saul had set out uh, with letters from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. It says he was still breathing threats and murder. He was going out 
to harm the disciples, to find them, to bring them to trial, to bring them to justice. In his mind, uh, these disciples uh, were a threat to the way of life of Judaism. And so he was doing everything in his power to find a way to bring them to trial and to get them to recant and even if necessary, uh, to put them to death. You know, he had been uh, in Acts chapter uh, 7 earlier with Stephen, standing there consenting to the death of Stephen. And so Saul sets out with these letters. He's on his mission up to Damascus, about a six-day journey. And as he's on the way, somewhere along the way, we presume it's closer to the city of Damascus, the Lord Jesus reveals himself to this man uh, there in the bright sunlight of day, and uh, just the, the light and the presence of Jesus and the voice knocks him to the ground. He falls down and he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then we talked about that verse there. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Just letting Saul know that he's been, you know, pressing against the Lord and kicking against the Lord for a long time. And Jesus is saying, essentially, in that moment, enough is enough. You know, we're having a little meeting right here, right now, on this road at noon in the dry, dusty desert, and we're going to have a conversation. And so Saul is now trembling and astonished, and he says to the Lord, and we mentioned this last week, Lord, what do you want me to do? Something that Saul was compelled to do because he met Jesus, but it's a good question for all of us to say to the Lord continually, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because our faith is not an idle faith. We talked about the verse out of James that says, let us not be hearers of the word only, but also doers. And so Saul now goes into the city of Damascus, and there we have this man, um, Ananias, whom the Lord sort of taps on the shoulder. This obscure disciple calls him up, sends him over to see Saul, And as he sends him there, he says, uh, give him this message and uh, lay your hands on him and pray for him that he might receive the Holy Spirit. So this all happens. Saul receives his sight. He had lost his sight for three days. He was so overwhelmed and overtaken by what had happened to him in this experience. And I don't know anyone who's had a conversion experience like this other than, than Saul of Tarsus. You know, maybe you have your own unique experience with the Lord, but it forever changed his life. And so now Saul is there waiting. Ananias comes in. He lays his hands on him. He says, Brother Saul. And he says, The Lord has sent me to you. And remember, the Lord told Ananias that I've also revealed to him that a guy named Ananias is going to come to him. So you have to go. I've already told him your name. In fact, I've already introduced you to him. So let's make this really easy. So he goes in, lays his hands on him. He sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. These things like scales fell off of his eyes. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. And then Saul spent some days at uh, Damascus with the disciples. And then we talked last week as we, we went on. Saul immediately wanted to serve Christ. And he, he, you know, as he had sat there for those three days, he was just waiting on the Lord And no doubt the Lord was speaking to him and ministering to him and he was reconciling in his mind all of those misinterpretations of the scriptures and Saul was a man who knew God's word like the back of his hand. And so he was now trying to figure out what does all this mean and where did I go wrong and how did I miss it? And so he shares now the truth that he's been understanding that's been rectified in his mind with those disciples there in Damascus. And it says there in verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And we had talked about how there were two different kinds of strength up above in verse 19. The strength that he had received was the strength from food. And he felt that physical nourishment. But while that's good, some of us are very focused on that. We need to focus on the spiritual strength as well. Verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength. And we talked about how the Lord was ministering to Saul and building him up. And and Saul was increasing in spiritual strength. 
And we talked about his ability to confound the Jews, to confuse them with their own arguments because he knew them so well. He was the perpetrator of those truths against Jesus and the misunderstanding and the misinterpretation and the misapplication of the scriptures. And now the Lord has been correcting him. Now he's sharing this truth immediately with the disciples there in Damascus and with the other Jews who were against Christ as he was. And it says there in verse 23, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. And of course, we know that Saul got sent away. He got let down in a basket by night that he might flee. And we talked last week about the fact that we believe this is where Saul uh, from Galatians 1 and other places went away for three years to the Arabian desert. And to the best of our understanding, as he was there for those three years, the Lord Jesus was meeting with him and ministering to him. We don't have the details of what happened there. We only know that that's what happened. He went away to the Arabian desert for three years. There are many who believe that the place where he went was Mount Sinai, where Moses received the law, and where Moses himself had spent a great deal of time waiting upon the Lord and listening to the Lord. So this place that Saul had gone to for this period of three years Uh, The Lord had ministered to him and built him up. Now, Saul, we come uh, to verse 26, where our passage is this morning. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. You can understand that, can't you? He was the guy who was the primary persecutor of the church. He was also the prosecutor of the church. He had legal documents against them. And so when he came to Jerusalem, even though it had been somewhere north of three years, and he tried to become a part of the church there and to join the disciples, they were all afraid of him and they did not believe that he was a disciple. It would seem that they believed or thought that he was maybe a spy. He was a mole. He was a plant. And so they didn't trust him. But now we find this man Barnabas, the second time he's mentioned to us in the book of Acts. Barnabas took him, verse 27, brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. So he basically goes before the the church leadership in Jerusalem and retells Paul's story for himself. You know, he goes to basically make a defense to come alongside as a friend to encourage Saul, to lift him up. And so he tells them his story, how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he, Jesus, had spoken to him, Saul, and how Saul had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus right after his conversion. And so he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. Now, from the beginning of Saul's ministry, As the Lord had been working in his life, we already saw people were coming against him to persecute him. Right away, that that prophecy as Ananias had laid his hands on him and prayed over him and told him, he said, you know, you're a chosen vessel of the Lord and you're going to suffer greatly for the Lord's sake. You know, right out of the gate, he begins to suffer. He begins to to be attacked, to be uh, persecuted himself. And of course, they had to let him down uh, through the, the window uh, in the wall in the basket. And so he's, his ministry has already begun with opposition. And, you know, we have to understand this. Jesus has told us over and over and over that those, you know, Paul said this later, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said in the Beatitudes Uh, you're going to be persecuted for my name's sake. So simply because we believe in the name of Jesus, because we use the name of Jesus properly, not in the way a lot of people use it, but in its true sense, that people will be offended by the name of Jesus. Someone has wisely said, God ruthlessly perfects those he royally elects. Let me say that again. God ruthlessly perfects those he royally elects. And so he allows us, indeed he wills, that we go through trials and difficulty and pain and suffering and failure. 
And that's also that our flesh can be put away, that our misunderstanding of who God is and how things operate can be changed to understand that God will allow those things in our lives so that we might become better servants, more humble servants, more qualified servants. And you know, for example, if you've ever gone through anything medically, and you know, maybe it's been through a a difficult time, a difficult trial, that when you meet someone else later down the road, maybe you've come through it and you've healed and you've recovered, and then you run into that person who's going through something similar, you have that compassion in your heart, don't you, for them. And you want to come alongside them and say, I may not know exactly how you're feeling, but I went through something similar and perhaps the things I've learned from my experience can benefit you. And so we come alongside that person and we share with them and we put our, our arm around them and we pray for them and we say, I'm going to be here and I'm going to love you and I'm going to support you. And the reason we do that is because we identify, because we've been through it. And therefore, God must do the same thing for you and I. You see, if we've never been tested, if we've never gone through a trial, if we've never experienced persecution or failure, then we don't know what it means to trust God. We, we trust God most intensely when we are in the midst of a trial. It's just true. It's just a principle of life. So many of us may go through life trying to avoid trials. You can't do that. It's not going to work. First of all, it's just not going to happen. You can't go through life unscathed and untouched by something. But also from God's point of view, it's not going to happen. There's too much in me that is in my flesh that is incorrect. It's not right. There are attitudes that aren't right. There are things I don't understand until the Lord takes me through them, until he takes me to the pit. You see, Psalm 23 Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You don't know that until you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Until then, that psalm is a platitude. But once you've walked through it, that psalm is a reality. And as I shared with you this morning, and actually I didn't even intend to share that about Psalm 91 uh, during worship, but it was something that happened to me. And every time I read Psalm 91 now, it reminds me, I remember that day like it was yesterday. I feel the sun. I can, I, I'm not trying to visualize it. It just happens. I see myself sitting by that pool, hearing those rockets, reading this scripture. And it was real for me. And that's what's happening in Saul's life. And that is what must happen in our lives. Let's take note of Barnabas here in, in verse 27. He brought him to the apostles. Now, Barnabas, we know his name means son of encouragement. Barnabas was a kind man. He was a gentle man. He was a man who did what the scriptures say, meaning he saw the best in people. And he saw Paul and he heard about what had happened to him. Perhaps he heard Saul preach earlier on. Maybe he was there in the audience. We don't know. But Barnabas came alongside Saul now after these number of years where he's been away to the desert. He's come back and he, he brings him. He says, look, these guys aren't going to accept you, but let me, let me take you in. Let me do the honor of introducing you to them and them to you. And let me have a word with them. You, you just be quiet. Let me tell the story. And so he did that. And this would be what we might call vouching for someone, going in, giving them a good word. You know, this is, this is way better than a job interview where you go in as a reference and say, I just want to say this person has outstanding character and I recommend them. I've worked with them before. You know, this is way beyond that. And Barnabas is taking Saul in and he's presenting them to these guys and he's saying, look, look at what the Lord has done. He's one of us. If God can save him, if God can convert him. And he says, by the way, remember us. Remember how God saved us? Remember where we were when he found us and when he called our names? Do you guys remember when he first said, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men? Don't forget that. Saul got that same kind of a call, except he was in a much worse place. He was desiring to persecute the church and to kill every one of you. Look at him now. Just like earlier when Peter and John had gone up to the temple in in chapters three and four of Acts, 
And he says, Here, here's this lame man whole before you. You can't argue with that. And so Barnabas is doing a very similar thing here. He's taking Saul of Tarsus in before the apostles and he's presenting him and he's saying, look, we need to receive him as a brother. He's one of us now. Don't we all need a friend like Barnabas? Let me say it differently. Can't we all be a friend like Barnabas? You might say, you know, I'm not really the encouraging type. I tend to be a more of the glass is half empty kind of a person. God can change that. God can change that. God can change that cynical outlook that you have. He can make you a Barnabas. He can make you a son or a daughter of encouragement. You see, God didn't save us to leave us the way we are, did he? Praise God for that. I don't even want to think about what I was like. I I know partially, I remember somewhat, it's been a long time, what I was like. I was a very negative person. But God changed that. And he wants to do that work in our lives. Look at what he did with Saul. You think Saul was a positive person? He wasn't. But God changed him. And so it says in verse 28 of Acts chapter 9, as uh, Barnabas is now presenting him, he says, so he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. So he had been received by the brothers, by the, by the apostles. And it says in verse 29, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. Now the Hellenists, we saw them earlier in Acts chapter 6. Where were they? They were the people, the Greek-speaking Jews, and the people who had usually nationality elsewhere, but they had spent a lot of their life more in Greek culture than they did Jewish culture. Here we have the Hellenists, as Paul is, or Saul, excuse me, is speaking with him. It says he's disputing against them. It says they attempted to kill him. These were the same people who tried to kill Stephen, who did kill Stephen, along with the Jewish leaders. And so here Saul is saying to them, likely, you can just imagine, remember I was there holding your coat, I was holding your coat while you were throwing the stones. And I'm here to tell you I've made a mistake, I made a horrible mistake. And I've repented before the Lord because I met Jesus. And not only did I meet him, I've just spent the last three years with him in seclusion. And I'm telling you, he's as real as the nose on your face. And there he is preaching Jesus to them And they immediately attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, that is those there in Jerusalem, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Now it's interesting that twice here with Saul, we've had the brothers, the older people in Christ, so to speak, those who are more mature, coming alongside him and saying, look, as he did did back in Damascus, we need to get you out of here. It's not safe. You need to live to fight another day. So we need to get you out of here to a safe place because right now everybody's, you know, is on the lookout for you. We need to get you out of here. And so they sent him away and and presumably at that point, that's where the Lord led him out to the Arabian desert. Now here we are again uh, at the end of his first time in Jerusalem since he had become a believer, meeting the apostles and the disciples and the church there. And he had been disputing with these Hellenists and they were trying to kill him. The brothers found out, they come alongside him, and they said, listen, Saul, you need to go away, you need to get out of here, it's not safe for you, this is not going to be an effective place to minister right now, so we need you to go away. So they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Now, Tarsus is where he was from, remember, Saul of Tarsus. And if you look on the maps in the back of your Bible, if your Bible has maps, You'll see there where Caesarea was, so it was down toward the coast, down toward the Mediterranean Sea, and then there they put him on a ship, sailed him up to Tarsus. Tarsus was right up in what was modern-day Turkey, where Syria and Turkey uh, all come together. And so as, he sent, as they sent Saul there, Saul now goes away for a period of about eight to ten years. And he disappears off of the face of the map until Barnabas will later go back and get him and bring him back. And that begins what we know as the ministry of Paul the Apostle. So uh, when the brethren found out, they took him down there. They sent him to Tarsus. 
And then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, and they were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now, it's interesting to think about Saul of Tarsus. This man had gotten saved. He'd already been taken away for three years to the Arabian desert, again, presumably to be tutored by Jesus. You would think, okay, well, he's ready to go. Well, now for this, these other eight plus years, he goes back home to Tarsus and he sits. What happens during those eight years? We don't know. There, there's not a lot of information about those eight years, but I think a relevant point here is this. No matter what happened during those eight years, it would seem that God put him on a shelf for a period of time until he had built himself into Saul, until he had poured himself fully and completely into Saul and gotten him to the place, to the point that he could serve. Now, does that mean that all of us need to spend 12 to 15 years away studying before we can serve the Lord? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But it is what God did with Saul. And you would think Saul, of all people, would be the the person who needs it the least because of his background, because of his education, because of his degrees. But apparently the Lord felt like there was something he was lacking, and we don't know what that was. But what we do know, if you've been in Christ any amount of time, you know this, that your character changes the more you walk with Christ. And the more you read his word and the more you let him speak to you, the more changed you become. So whatever it was in Saul of Tarsus's life, God felt he needed some time to build into him the person and make him into the person he needed to be so that he could become the man we know as the Apostle Paul. So they brought him down, they sent him out. And notice what it says in verse 31 as they did this. The churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Remember again, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And now we're, we're finding out here in Acts chapter 9, and as we roll into chapter 10, we're now about 10 years post the resurrection. Then the churches throughout all Judea, so the churches, remember, had been scattered from Jerusalem through persecution. We've been talking about that with Philip and Stephen and uh, what had been happening with the spread of the gospel. And now you know, Philip had gone up to Samaria to to preach. Notice it says churches in Galilee. This is the only place we read about churches in Galilee. There's no other mention of churches in Galilee. This is the first mention of churches in Galilee. And as we go through the rest of the book of Acts, they aren't mentioned. So you wonder, wow, how did that happen? Well, remember Jesus called those disciples from the area, from the region of Galilee, Peter, James, and John, and others, Andrew. They were from Galilee, so we can only speculate, but, but likely they had been used of the Lord to uh, plant and to uh, you know, nurture and, and bring to health those churches there in the Galilee region. Then we come to Samaria, and of course, I would imagine when the Lord spoke those words to them there at the beginning of the book of Acts, that their minds had to question, you know, God's wisdom, Lord, Samaria. And we talked about that last, a couple of weeks ago with Philip. Samaria, not exactly the place you want to go. People regarded them as people who were off limits. They viewed them as half-breeds. They had a very despicable view of that people. And yet God wanted to reach those people. Jesus himself had demonstrated he wanted to reach those people in that city. Those who were the cultural outcasts. So right from the beginning of the gospel, God himself says, I don't care who who a refugee is. I don't care who the outcast is. Every single soul is important. Remember, we looked at uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. He was an outcast because of his condition. And yet he loved the Lord and God saved him. He sent Philip down to minister to him, give him the gospel, baptize him in a little watering hole along a desert road and then translated him, took him away, beamed him away to another place. And now we sort of switch away at this point in verse 32 from Saul. He goes away, as I said, for eight to 10 years. And now we come back into focus with Peter, the apostle. So in verse 32... 
It came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. Lydda was down by what we know as modern day um, Tel Aviv on the coast. So Peter's kind of going around, you know, as an apostle, you know, what's happening? Where is the Lord planting churches? What can I do? So he came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. Now, one thing that's always interesting for us to note is this principle of first mention. We just talked about the first mention of the church in Galilee. Here is the first time in the book of Acts that believers or Christians are called saints. So he came down to these saints who dwelt in Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. So oftentimes when Jesus came in contact with people, as was true earlier in the book of Acts, when uh, Peter and John were going up to the temple about the hour of prayer in the afternoon, they came across that man who was by the gate, the beautiful gate, and he had been lame from life. So many people that Jesus and others had encountered had been lame or paralyzed from life. We are told here that this man had been bedridden for eight years. So likely something happened in his life, whether it was a sin or whether it was an accident, whatever it was, he had been bedridden for eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter looked at this man and we're not told why, but Peter had compassion on this man. And he said, Aeneas, Jesus, the Christ heals you, arise and make your bed. And then he arose immediately. You got to love how Peter, as he walks into this little gathering of believers, and he sees this man who is paralyzed and bedridden, that he immediately had compassion on him. And no doubt, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit. And notice how Peter said this to the man. He says, Jesus, the Christ heals you. Peter didn't take any glory for it, did he? He didn't say, hey, I've got the gift of healing. I'm an apostle. Because he knew he was not the one to be worshipped. It was Jesus. Everything points to Jesus, remember. Jesus said, the Spirit will point to me because I always point to the Father. And so here, as he says these words, this man, Aeneas, is uh, healed. He says, arise and make your bed. Maybe you want to go in, parents, and read this over your kids so that they might arise and make their bed. I don't know. Maybe it'll work. You can try it. Or maybe there's some of you adults today we need to say this to who still haven't learned how to make your bed. It's free information for you there. Just helping you out. Especially you moms, right? Because you're the ones always trying to get people to make their beds. Anyways, Peter raised this man. He healed him. Then he arose immediately. Notice what happened. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now, earlier, we just walked through this verse here in 31 about how the Lord was giving peace and he was edifying the churches. And notice it said that they were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the spirit and they were being multiplied. When we are walking in the Lord's ways, when we are reading his word, when we are worshiping him, when we are doing the right things, and when we are serving him, this is what happens, verse 31. The fear of the Lord, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and God bringing the multiplication. Remember, all the way back at the end of Acts chapter 2, it said, and he was adding to the church daily such as should be saved. So here they are ministering, and then you see here in verse 35, all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw this man healed and turned to the Lord. You see, healings and these, you know, uh, raising from the dead and all of these things, these miracles were not done to draw attention to the person doing the healing, was it? Not once. Not once in the book of Acts, not once in the scriptures, other than Jesus himself, do we see anyone working a miracle so that people might look at the, the person, the agent through whom the miracle was worked? It's always pointing to Jesus. And this is one of the ways we can know if signs and wonders are real if they're genuine, because as it says here in verse 35, when they saw this man who had been healed in, in a very similar way back to Acts 3 and 4 to when James and John had healed that man by the gate, everybody was amazed and they came and they wanted to know what had happened. 
These signs and these wonders point people to Jesus Christ. All who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. The healing of one lame man preached the gospel in such a powerful way that all these people came to to know the Lord simply because he was healed and raised up. So this man and his condition must have been well known. Otherwise, the people would not have been impressed with what had happened. Now, God is doing something sort of behind the scenes here. Let me read this little excerpt for you, sort of on the background. Peter was heir to a strong tradition of prejudice that went clear back to Abraham and was exemplified in men like Jonah, who resisted bearing witness to the Gentiles. Peter was squarely in Gentile territory down in Lydda. And, uh, and he was at, and remember, um, Jonas, uh, Jonah was actually angry with God when the Ninevites repented and God had saved them and they escaped his judgment. During Peter's time, Jewish midwives were forbidden to aid a Gentile woman in childbirth, for they would thereby help propagate Gentile scum. The tradition-minded Hebrews called Gentiles goyim, which means the nations, and when they said that word, they literally spat the word out of their mouth with intense contempt. This attitude even permeated the Hebrew Christian community. Why do I share that with you? Because as we roll into chapter 10, Peter is going to get severely challenged, isn't he? In his understanding of what it means to have fellowship with people who are in Christ, but they're, they're Gentiles, they're not Jews. God himself is now beginning to push the gospel into the Gentile regions. And so as uh, he had been there uh, in Lydda, And healed this man, and the Lord was doing this work. We find out here in verse 36, at Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas, and this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. So Peter comes into this this area of believers in Joppa, which is just up the coast a bit from Lydda, and he finds this disciple, this, this wonderful lady named Tabitha. Now her name, whether it's Tabitha or Dorcas, both when translated mean deer or gazelle. And so that would translate into that she is a loving, graceful, caring, and helpful person. And it says that she was full of good works and charitable deeds. So people knew her. And they, you know, this is the kind of person that when you meet her, You know, she could talk to you for a few minutes and the next week you see her and here she's knitted or crocheted something that you needed. And you're like, well, how did you know I needed this? And somehow she had this insight. And so she was always doing these things. If she heard of a person in need, she found a way to serve them. So we have here a picture, a wonderful picture of a servant of the Lord and this woman, Tabitha, that she was serving the church and it was, it had made such a difference But it happened, verse 37, in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. So this woman took ill and died. None of us are going to avoid death unless the Lord comes back and receives us up to himself in the rapture in a a cloud. We will go through this process. Verse 36, and since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him, not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter had to, his head had to be spinning. He's already in Gentile territory. God had already, remember, taken him down to Samaria after Philip, Philip's ministry, and he had him involved with that. Now he's taking him out to Lydda. Now he's taking him up to Joppa. And he's imme- Peter's immediately being you know, pushed into this area of uncomfortableness, taking him outside of his comfort zone. And this is what God does often with us, doesn't he? As he leads us by the Spirit. He takes us into uncomfortable places. I was talking with a pastor friend yesterday who had just gotten back from a trip, missions trip down to Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And as they were there, and, you know, he felt like the Lord had led he and some of his people there to sort of explore, you know, is there something we can do here or should be involved in? 
he was relating to me this story as God had led them there. He's there with his wife and these people. And all of a sudden they found themselves in the middle of this camp where they were surrounded by the people of the region that they had come to serve and attempt to show the love of Christ to because they knew they had supplies, you know, food and other supplies in the back of their truck. And they were going to attack them, turn the truck over and take the food and the supplies. And they didn't know if they were going to get hurt. And so they were there in that moment, just like, wow, how did we get here and what's going on? And are we going to live? Are we going to get out of it? And then they saw the Lord just kind of come in and miraculously clear the crowd out and get them out of the way so that they could go later to the designated place to serve them. But in that moment, they were just like, wow, what is going on here? We could die. We could die here in this place. And so God is always doing these things. He's leading us to places where we are uncomfortable and where it might not be safe. You know, so often I, I listen to our prayers as, as often we pray for safety. I understand that. But God doesn't always want us to be safe. Do you understand that this morning? These people who have gone before us, who are the pioneers of the church, if they had lived for safety or made their decisions based on how safe they may or may not be, do you understand the gospel would not have gone to places that it went to, that it liberated people from sin, where they healed people, where they cast demons out of people? The gospel knows no bounds. And God will lead people in his service to these places and in ways that make us uncomfortable. And listen, we have to be okay with that. When we say, I'm trusting the Lord, or we encourage others to trust the Lord, I hope that we aren't doing that in a flippant way. I hope we are doing that in a godly biblical way, where we are trying to encourage people, look, when you don't know what's ahead, when you can't see the road ahead, when you don't know how this is going to work out, and often we don't, you have to trust the Lord and let him lead you in what's happening. So he went there to this place. He uh, went in with them. He had come in. They brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing him the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made. Now, this situation is strikingly similar to a situation where Jesus had been called in to a little girl who had died. And as he went into them, he took only Peter, James, and John, kicked everybody else out. There were mourners in the room. He kicked them out. And as he came into this room, I have to believe that Peter was probably recalling this. And he's like, Lord, in his mind, probably like, Lord, I remember when you did this. And, and hopefully I've learned. Peter went in and he put them all out, verse 40, and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And remember Jesus, when he had done the same thing, he had said, Talitha kuma. And this is one word, one letter office like Tabitha Kuma in the original language. So it's almost exactly the same. Peter, this is like a, a cookie cutter situation. This rarely happens. And Peter put them all out. He prayed. He said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And then he gave her his hand. He lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed on the Lord. So once again, we see this woman. We see a person, you know, resuscitated from death. She was, she was dead. The, the mourners were there. They all knew she was dead. And yet Peter raised her up by the power of the Lord. And many believed on the Lord. Once again, this resulted in people believing on the name of Christ. And so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. So this, everything's all a big setup here, leading us into chapter 10, which we'll get into next week. But to go and stay with a tanner, this is like going to the house of a Samaritan. This is going into a forbidden place. Let me read this to you. After this final miracle, uh, Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. The significance of this is that a tanner's place of business was anathema to a fastidious Jew. It was highly unpleasant and smelly, and animals were slain there. 
tanners were ostracized and had to live a minimum of 50 cubits outside any town. Rabbinical law stated that if a betrothed woman discovered that her fiancé was involved in tanning, she could break the engagement. However, Peter had met a Jewish tanner who loved Jesus and was willing to associate with him. And God was at work in the impulsive apostle's heart. The old biases were wearing thin. So God is sort of, think of it as tenderizing the meat. He's preparing Peter. He's getting him ready for what's going to come in the next chapter. He's challenging his ideas and his biases. And he's bringing him to a place that in in the next chapter, he's going to find him all in the middle of something that he never signed up for. And God's going to do something so amazing. So as we think about what we've sort of looked at and, and studied here today, We've looked at Barnabas, we've looked at encouragement, we've looked at helpers and healers. Peter came in and he was being used of the Lord to bring healing. Barnabas was helping. Dorcas, Tabitha, she was a helper. We have examples from these people, from these saints, of what we should be like, of the work that God wants to do in our lives. We also have examples of how God was leading people and putting them in places and positions that was not comfortable for them. And we have to be open to those things in our own lives. Listen, a friend of mine, some of you know Pastor Jim Davis, who was the the pastor who founded uh, Calvary over at uh, the Great Bay Area. He was, uh, and I hadn't planned to share his story, but uh, they were having an evening of worship. He was sitting there worshiping just, you know, in a time like this. And he shared this story with me after it happened that he just felt very clearly like almost like a bolt of lightning. You know, the Lord spoke to him in an almost audible voice and said, your time here is up. And I have another assignment for you that I want you to go do, which he's now doing. Um, But that was a shock to him. And when he shared it with me, it was a shock to me. He had become my dear friend. He had become a a person that I could trust, someone that I needed, and we were that for each other. And all of a sudden, the Lord is saying, hey, your time's up, you need to go. And the time fuse on that, that word that the Lord gave him was very short. From the time the Lord spoke to him to the time he left was about three months. It's pretty quick. But God had his method. God has his way. Now God put another man in his place who is the right man for the job in this season. What if God does that here? What if he did it to me? What if he did it to one of you? Would you be willing to listen to the Lord and to do what he says? If the Lord says to you, you're sitting in a restaurant, you've, you've, and people wonder, you know, does God speak like this? Yeah, he does. What if he was speaking to your heart and he says, hey, you see that person sitting in the corner? I want you to go over there and talk to them. Would you get up and leave your dinner and go over and do it? You see, I think as we go through the book of Acts here, these are the kinds of things that are happening, isn't it? These people are being spoken to. Philip, hey, I want you to go down to the desert road. What? Things are going pretty good here, Lord. Nope, I got a little trip for you. Then he sends them somewhere else. We've seen this over and over and over. Listen, folks, following Jesus, being a Christian, is not something we can put in a box and tie up with a bow and set our alarm and say, this is what's going to happen every day at 6 a.m. It doesn't work that way. The life of faith is a life of adventure. Following Jesus means following him. We sing it in our songs, where you lead, I will follow. Do we mean it? Are we willing to trust him the way these people trusted him? And often, of course, they didn't set out to trust him in the way they found themselves having to trust him. They just went, well, here we are. I guess we better get, you know, what are we going to do now? Just got to trust the Lord and keep moving forward and see what God does. Oh, you know what? You stirred up a lot of people. We're going to let you down in the basket at night. Well, where's my car? Car, Forget the car. Start walking east. God will provide. We were looking in the Bible study the other night at that story. You may remember it of the Old Testament of Elijah where the Lord was protecting him and he took him out by this place called the Brook Cherith. And as the Lord took him there, he fed him with ravens for a period of time. 
and it gave him a little solace, a little peace, and he sat there in this little secluded piece of forest, and the ravens brought him his food, and he had water. And then one day, rather than just speaking to him, the Lord just dried up the brook. All of a sudden, bloom, no more water. What just happened? All right, time for you to move on. The water's dried up. Got another assignment for you, Elijah. And this is what God did. Now, why, we love to read these stories, but do you put yourself in the story? What if it was you? What would you do if that happened? Would you believe God? Would you trust him? And I believe this is what he wants us to be challenged with as we get ready for next week, Acts chapter 10. It's going to be an awesome thing. You ready? All right. Lord, we thank you this morning. We praise you. We bless you. We're looking forward, Lord, to the next step, to the next adventure. Lord, you're amazing. You're gracious. You are the sovereign king. You are the Lord. You are the healer. You are the one who takes your word and puts it into action. You are the one who challenges us. You're the one who leads your servants. Because you love people and you have things that you want to do. And Lord, we want to make ourselves available to you. That we, like Peter, like Saul, like Barnabas, like Dorcas, that we would be ready and available. Like Aeneas, man who was in pain and agony, yet you healed him and uh, he was grateful to be healed, I'm sure. But uh, all of a sudden he became the agent of salvation to a lot of people, the example that caused people to get saved. I'm sure he didn't plan that in his life, but you did it. And Lord, you might want to do that for us and to us and through us. So may we resolve here in this moment as we close this morning to say yes to you, to be willing to say like Saul did on that road to Damascus, Lord, what do you want me to do? And to be willing to be open, to be available. And to not get in the habit, as Peter's going to say later when you speak to him, he's going to say, not so, Lord. May we not be in that place where we say that to you. May we already be practicing and saying, yes, Lord. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for saving us. Lord, for any here today or listening who have never believed and trusted in Jesus, we pray that this might be their moment where they would believe in the salvation that you have provided through the cross, that you died, that we might have our sins forgiven, that we would have the atonement of your blood applied to our lives, that we might have a relationship with God the Father, the Creator, Yahweh, the covenant God. And may they just believe in you and trust in you in this moment. Repent, turn from the way that they're walking and turn and walk into the paths of new life that you have laid out for us, Lord. May we be able to say with the Apostle John, we love you because you first loved us. May we do that right now in our hearts, God. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.